Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yardena Osban, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf for the day, Shabbat daf Mem Zion, 47. We will also be finishing up Perak uh, Gimel, the third Perak of Masachat Shabbat. And tomorrow, even though it does begin on this page, we will begin our discussion. Great time if you have friends who you think would love learning with us and join Talking Talmud family. Um, the beginning of a parak is always a good time to jump in. So we just want to remind everybody of that and give you a little bit of our coming attractions. Uh, today's episode, Anne and I have a couple of small points that we want to share and discuss and review that are on the DAF um, and sort of, you know, bring the closure of this parak together. Uh, the first thing that I want to talk about, which Anne and I just both sort of just adored, we thought it was just like a lovely little thing on the DAF is there's a discussion at the top of the Amud between Rabbi Zeyer and Rabbi Asi. Rabbi Zeyer comes to Rabbi Asi and he wants to discuss with him a particular teaching uh, or to discover whether or not Rabbi Yochanan uh, said a particular statement or held by a particular opinion. So he goes through the whole question and then the Gemara, in a way that it does not always do, records uh, his Rabbi Asi's reaction to the question um, by citing a pasuk in Daniel. So it says, Ashtuman keshat chada, right? Which uh, literally means that he was confused uh, for a moment. Amar, And then it goes and records what Rav Asi's uh, answer was once he pondered uh, the question. I think it's just a nice little piece where like sort of the narrator of the Gemara in retelling this story of this encounter between Rabbi Zera. And uh, Ravasi, like he, you know, just wants to sort of put in the narrator like this little piece that actually this was a question that was difficult and took him a little bit of time to answer. And they and the way that they, you know, express this is by quoting this pasuk that appears in um, Sefer Daniel. It's Perak Dalit Pasuk uh, Tet Zion, chapter four, verse 16. So um, as I think we've talked about this before, it's always important to sort of look up the actual parak itself where uh, something appears when it's quoted in the Gemara. So I encourage everybody to go ahead and do that. Um, but it's just just a nice little tidbit of sort of explaining, uh, enhancing uh, this lovely interaction here. You know, Yardana, you said that I adored it. We adored it. And I, I really did. Meaning, here's what my read of this is like, you know, we do this. We, we have these kinds of conversations where we intersperse our speech with references to the things that we know that all the people, we hope that all our listeners, whatever, will know about. In regular conversation, we quote a movie, we quote something from the internet, we quote something from Torah or Shakespeare, you know, Lahavzil, obviously. And I feel like that's what happened here, right? That the Gemara said like, you know, Oh, and he was dumbstruck. But instead of saying he was dumbstruck, he it quotes Daniel because don't we all know that that's what you do when you, you know, have this pause that needs, you know, to describe what happened. Now, I don't know if this was a common thing or not, but it feels that way to me. It feels like, you know, instead of using a verse as a proof text, which we see all the time and you've seen with us all this time, right? It, and instead of doing actual analysis of the biblical text, which also happens, right? This is using the biblical text as the reference point to make a comment, you know, off the cuff. And I think there's really something very beautiful about that. And and so human and so contemporary, even though I would not have ever chosen this Pusik from Daniel because I don't know it well enough, but I'll use something else and so will you. 
no, it's it's a nice little literary touch to the pages of the Gemara. Um, and uh, we'll keep looking for those as we continue our learning together. Now I want to move on to the next piece that's on this stuff. So uh, Rev. Asi, in order to explain why it was, the case that was being discussed is why Rabbi Huda Hanasi, it seems somebody was in his house and saw that he allowed um, this, uh, like a plate or a container of ashes to be carried on Shabbat. And as we had discussed before, right, that if you had a candle that had burned out, um, that's something that you shouldn't necessarily be, according to Rabbi Huda, you wouldn't be allowed to carry it. It would be muksa. Um, and here a question would be also, okay, so if you have these coals, presumably something that burnt out and you have the ashes now, why should you be allowed to carry that, uh, to move it at least, sorry, to move it on Shabbat? And the answer that's given that Ravasi comes up with is he says, hafanami de bay kartin that he says we're dealing with a case where the container had um, like some unburned incense. And therefore, it's that the unburned incense theoretically could be used again or be taken out. And and therefore, it's, you know, it's not considered to just be um, muksa, the whole thing. So Abaye rejects this and says the following, Amar Abaye, kartin ba rabi mi chashive. How could it be that this kartin would be something that would be significant in uh, Rebbe, Rebbe Huda Nasi's house? Um, and the reason for that is, and we'll talk about, we'll, we'll have to do a who's who in Rebbe Huda Nasi, um, but I think we have established that Rebbe Huda Nasi, you know, who's sort of the end of the Tanaitic period and is the redactor of the Mishnah, uh, besides being uh, the Nasi, he actually was very wealthy. And this actually comes up in a variety of Gemaras. Uh, you know, there's one that I believe that talks about how he actually was able to have strawberries because of his wealth. So here what Abai is basically saying is, okay, these like little pieces that are left over of incense for somebody who's so wealthy, they're like not significant for him. He's not going to like go through and pick through the ashes to get it out. And so maybe therefore with the Gemara one sentence, which is okay, all right. So maybe it wasn't significant to him but it would be significant to poor people. So, you know, so yeah, so it still could be considered to be something significant. But now they're going to bring a brasa that I think has a really important halakhic concept to counter that. Bahatanya, it was taught in a brasa. Big day aniyim la'aniyim, big day ashirim la'ashirim, avalda aniyim la'ashirim lo. So here the Gemara is talking about uh, clothing and it's talking about what type of clothing uh, is susceptible to become tummy that can acquire ritual impurity. And it's saying there's some clothing, right? Big day aniyam laniyam, that for poor people is clothing for poor people. And then there's clothing, ashirim lashirim, that for wealthy people are for wealthy, right? So presumably what that would mean is, is that something that was more like a rag, right? Or a smaller piece of clothing, that would be considered clothing for a poor person. And therefore it could be makabel tuma. It could, it could acquire ritual impurity for the poor person. But for a wealthy person, it would never be considered a type of clothing. And then the Brisa continues by saying, but clothing that would be used for a poor person would not be classified as clothing for a wealthy person. And therefore, when that item is in possession of a wealthy person, it cannot be makabal tuma. It actually cannot acquire ritual impurity. And I think the Brisa here is making a wonderful point. You know, part of the challenge with creating a huge framework of Jewish law 
is we want there to basically be entirely objective criteria, right? This is allowed. This isn't allowed. This can become tame. This can become tahor. And here, what this brisa is essentially saying is, is that built into the system to be subjectivity. What's important to one person or what's of use to one person may not be used to another person. And the chiddush here, the insight here of this brisa is actually pretty amazing. A piece of clothing that could acquire ritual impurity could be one thing in the house of a poor person, but in a rich person's house where it would never be considered to be clothing, would not be able to acquire ritual impurity. And I think that's actually the challenge, but yet the beauty of Jewish law is that it recognizes this is something that needs to be practiced and held by people. And therefore, because it's a human system, it has to have some subjectivity in it. It can't just be a purely objective system where, you know, it's literally columns full of laws of this is allowed, this isn't allowed. And I think this Brisa, um, which is not talking about Hilchot Shabbat, um, but I think it expresses it very beautifully around this, I, you know, this uh, case of clothing, what is considered clothing for the poor person and what's considered clothing for the rich person. I think it's also, I mean, it's almost a tautology, right? We know this is true. We know that different people experience the world differently, everything differently, right? Quarantine differently. Everybody's got a different experience. But there's there's often in discussion, and certainly in law, there's often a discussion in terms of codifying something as if it's the same experience for everybody. So I really appreciate the fact that there's a recognition here straight up that that cannot be, you cannot make a, a an across-the-board policy without room for caveats and exceptions and so on because with the recognition that everybody's going to have that there are many different circumstances that will have a different experience of the exact same phenomenon uh you know i think we know it to be true and we don't always see it in a legal system and i think we don't even always see it in halacha or in our experience of practical judaism it's nice to see it in the bright to hear yeah it's 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 really this is definitely a bright uh that i'm going to be going back to um uh, for sure, like when I teach, I could see just a lot of places. The the lesson of this price uh, really resonated with me. Um, the last thing I just quickly wanted to mention is, I know one thing we keep talking about is part of the challenge of studying muksa is that many of the terms of muksa, especially how the or the you know commentators on the Gemara talk about it, are using terms that don't actually ever appear in the Gemara itself and. Um, but here we have an example where one of the words that we talked about does appear on the page. So I know we talked about a couple dapim ago, ago um, the idea of muksa machmat mias, right? That something is muksa because it's disgusting. Um, and here we see actually this word appear here, right? Amarava, again, they're going through this discussion about the case with the ashes, right? There are two, um, there are two explanations that he can give here. So, right, remember, it was talking about a case of why you could move a um, clee that was filled with a vessel that was filled with excrement. And therefore, what they're trying to say is, well, if you can move excrement, why can't you move ashes? Right. And so what he says here, here's that word, right, of ma'is, of something being disgusting, of something, you know, not being nice. Um, and again, it's in a different uh, context, because the context that we see it with the candle, with the nair, is that sort of once the nair burns out, once the candle burns out, 
it's not good anymore. It's not useful anymore. It's, it's like ruined in a way. Um, here it's more applied to something like excrement, but I just wanted to point out that the root, that same word appears on this page. Yep. And, and an important one it is, uh, not my nice. favorite, not my favorite thing for, <laughs> like I said, I, you know, I get squeamish, not from everything that's gross, but you know, why, why make things messy and icky if you don't have to? Okay, moving on. We are now on Ahmed Bet, and we're coming to the Mishnah with which this parrot closes. And I find you're going to join me, I think, in this interest that this Mishnah is, it, it's its own little topic. It's got a tiny Mishnah. It's got a tiny piece of Gemara on it. And part of what's interesting to me about it is that it is a separate topic all by itself. So the Mishnah says, No, so again, this is a, you have to envision a candle phenomenon, a candle structure that isn't the way that that um that we have them today. In fact, I realized um, on yesterday's recording I mentioned the word wax for the word shraga, and that's just not correct at all, right? Meaning shraga means the candle, but there was no wax in the candles of of yore, right? It was oil, and um, you know I apologize for that. So let's here understand that there was a contraption that there would be a something that could be put underneath the actual oil lamp and that any, and it would, I guess, be a larger dish. And so that any sparks or embers that might, might come flying from the sputtering of the flame of the wick. I don't know what sputters the oil wick flame sputters. Right. And then any sparks that fall out from that should fall into this, you know, receptacle underneath and not risk sparking a fire and so on. Okay, and then the Gemara says, "Don't." Uh, I'm sorry, the Mishnah says, "Don't don't put any water in this receptacle because then, by virtue of the water being there, it's as if you are actively extinguishing the flame or the spark. Right? It's not yet a flame, and that's you know that's prohibited explicitly in the verses of the Torah, not to extinguish a flame. So, or not to ignite and not to extinguish a flame. Right? So." Here's then the Gemara continues. Uh, the Gemara com comments on this, and here's why I think it's so interesting that it's this little little piece, and it gets all this attention. The Gemara says, "One second, you're you're knocking out, you're you're canceling out the viability of this vessel. You know, the one that will get the sparks or catch the sparks. You know, you're you're negating it from it from the get go. no from its preparedness, right?" So what happens? The concern is that when you when you put your when you put this it doesn't have a name, right? When you put this dish underneath the oil lamp to catch the sparks, then it's as if you are oh, let me think it through. I I I, I, your Dana knows, I thought this through, I said, I don't get it, I don't get it, and then I got it, and I had it, and I was all ready to talk about it, and now I have to think it through again, so bear with me, sometimes Gemara yeah, works we, we had way, to, right? We, we had says, to read this through a little bit, this was a little tricky for us. So it says, Vaha kamevatel klimehechano, that by, by putting this, by saying that you can't use this thing underneath the oil lamp, it says, if you're you're knocking down the availability of the lamp itself, right? You can put the dish underneath it, but don't put water in it. And the Gemara says, well, one second, aren't you messing with the very essence of what this Kli is, right? That you can't use it for anything on Shabbat, right? 
And here I'm going to read to you from the Safaria translation here. It is no longer prepared for any use on Shabbat as the sparks accorded a set-aside status, meaning that dish is about to hold something that is for sure muksa, meaning the sparks themselves, they are either nolad or they are or they are usr, right? Meaning however you come to look at the muksa aspect of them, right, they are a problem. You cannot handle them on Shabbos, right? They are usr from from either one of these categories. Again, either because they are nolad, they didn't exist prior to the phenomenon of them coming into existence on Shabbat, or they're also to begin with because there's sparks and it's fire and you're putting out um, sparks, okay? And then what that means is that doesn't that very phenomenon, that the thing that they're supposed to catch means that the very item itself is also an issue of, of moksa, right? Meaning you can't use it in any way on Shabbat. It should be something that is not allowed on Shabbat. And then the Gemara says, one sec- it's not it's not the stam of the Gemara. It's Rav Yehuda Bered Rav Yehoshua. mamash. The sparks don't have any substance. So the fact that the the sparks have no substance means that they land in that dish and they extinguish whatever, and then you come to carry that dish, and you're not carrying anything. Meaning it has not provided you with any muksa to 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 prohibit, right? Because there's nothing to carry, so there's nothing to prohibit carrying. Is that clear? I, I don't know. You'll complain. You'll let us know if it, if I'm not if I'm not being clear. But I think the idea is that the very fact that you might think that this would become a prohibited or a clee for prohibited use at the end of the day, it's considered. The Gemara says, no, no, it's not. Rafuna Brave of Yeshua says it's not because the very fact of the the fact that the substance dissolves, disappears, however you want to categorize it, they burn immediately. There's nothing there, and now you can move that same dish. You can't put the water in because it will extinguish the, the sparks. That seems self-explanatory. Now the Gemara is going to do what it very often does and try to figure out whose opinion aligns with whom. So well, maybe this statement in the Gemara is really like Rabbi Yossi. Meaning the moment you have something that causes extinguishing, that also is prohibited. As opposed to saying what I pr- had as a premise, oh, this is active, you know, that the water is actively putting something out. The Gemara doesn't take it so given, right? The water is passively putting something out, not actively, right? It is there, you have put it there, but you're not doing the extinguishing, you're letting the water do it. So maybe, but Rebiosi holds is of the opinion that extinguishing, causing something to be extinguished, is itself prohibited. And then that would explain why you're not allowed to put water in this little dish. So the Gemara says, Vitizbra, you kidding? Okay, maybe that's not exactly the Gemara formulation. Vitizbra, can you really understand it that way? Is that logical? But like Svara, right? Which means a logical, I don't know, position, whatever. Amor, the Amar Rabbi Shabbat, Be'erev Shabbat Me'amar. Meaning Rabbi Yossi's position of not having a passive extinguishing taking place is all about Shabbat. But here we're talking about putting that dish in place is happening on Arab Shabbat. Who says he was talking about that? If you're going to say he also, that this would also apply to Shabbat. You're allowed to do it. Right? The Gemara makes it very clear that you're allowed to do it. So that can't be Rabbi Yossi's position. 
לא ייתן לתוכו מים מפני שהוא מכבה מערב שבת. That seems to be, not putting water in would have to be from Erev Shabbat, from before it even becomes Shabbat. And you obviously can't put it in on Shabbat in accord with Rabbi Yossi's position, the water, right? You can't even, you can't set it up to actively, to passively extinguish even once it's already Shabbat. So Rav Ashi comes to resolve all this. Right? He says, okay, you know, we understand that there's a question over when you're trying to do this and how bad is, how, how, what degree of malacha are, or are you encroaching upon here when you put the water in? Is this Rabbi Yossi's opinion? Is it Erev Shabbat? Rav Ashi is going to resolve it all. He says, even if you say that this is holding like the Rabbanan, right? Not like Rabbi Yossi, that the passive extinguishing is not such a problem. This is a different case because in this case, he's not only passively allowing it to extinguish, right? But he's making it happen faster because the sparks would have eventually gone out anyway, meaning momentarily gone out if they just fell in the dish. When you put in that water, you are speeding up the process. And when you speed up the process, that is a, a deeper level or a or more extensive level of engagement on your part. And that is um, and that even the people who say that it's fine, that you do, that passive extinguishing is not prohibited, this is no longer passive extinguishing. This is kind of like a little bit active extinguishing. And that is, according to Ravashi, that explains why everybody would agree that putting water in this dish to catch the sparks would be a problem. Hadran Allah, Kira, this parak about you. cooking. I, the, you know, the one quick comment I'll make on that last section is, I think that last Mishnah was like a real case for them, you know, that that's how they lit their houses. And I'm sure people tried to use, I, I, you know, I'd like to find out more about this, but if they had bigger, you know, candles or cleaves that had a certain amount of oil so that they could get more light for Shabbat itself. Um, and probably this issue of like sparks and catching them was like a real practical piece of how Shabbat was observed. So yes, you could have, you know, a lot, and I think we've all had where you've had like, uh, especially if you're using a wick with oil, that it can spark a little bit. So today, again, these are not things we worry about with electricity, although I think we have our own separate fire concerns with the hot plates and the blocks and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the fact that it was its own mission has devoted to it, I think shows us how it was such a part of their keeping of Shabbat in those time, in that time. So I don't light oil for Shabbat. But I do light oil most of the time for Hanukkah. And I know, and I, and I light on shakalas is water and then oil. And so it's a, it lasts for a very long time. And you know when it's coming to the end mm -hmm. because it begins to sputter. And the fact that, you know, and I would not light on a wood stove. I would not, uh, on a wood, on a wood, I don't know what, platter. I would not light next to curtains, you know, for like, that's because I'm fire conscious and, and hopefully in a healthy way, right? But we know that there is such a thing as a sputtering, sparking, whatever that can happen. And honestly, I've seen it in, you know, the, their thick white candles that come in a glass. I don't know what they're called. Not the tea lights. They're thicker than that and taller than that. And they come in the little glass, I don't know, containers. And you light those. So one time we were sitting at Shabbat dinner and one of these like blew apart. And thank God nobody happened to be in the trajectory of this item. So the fact that they knew enough to know that there was something to guard against and to protect the, their possessions from and so on. You know, again, I think that the practicality of it is very real. 
and the fact that it is a piece of this of Gemara that is, you know, given a full discussion as to why this is not okay, and why why you might want it to be okay, and so on. I, I think it's I think it's valuable. That's our Daf discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get our podcasts. Um, join us on our Facebook group. Come and comment and discuss and open the discussion on our Facebook page. Thank you to Michelle for hosting us on the Hadron website and for asking me where they are on the Hadron website. I apologize. We will still get them there. It's been a very hectic work week for me, um, more than one week. And that's it. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Music.